You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. night I was standing around here looking at my photographs. They're my life, and I don't know what to anybody to distort that just for their comfort. Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two. Test, test. When I was diagnosed with this virus, it didn't take me long to realize I contracted a disease society as well. We will make America great again. Is the fact that I may be dying of AIDS in 1989, is that not political? Is the fact that I don't have health insurance and I don't have access to adequate health care, is that not political? The art of David Wernerovich has recently been at the center of controversy because the subject matter deals with sexuality and AIDS. Whatever work I've done, it's always been informed by what I experienced as an American in this country, as a homosexual in this country, as a person who's legislated into silence in this country. The government has a day-to-day job maintaining an illusion of a one-tribe nation. And I wake up every morning, I wake up every morning to kill a machine called America. David Wernerovich is more valuable than every one of these preachers that ever lived. David, that's so offensive. Do we have to call it that? To the barricades! Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with three people behind the production of Wojnarowicz, which is a new documentary about David Wojnarowicz, an artist, writer, multimedia professional, whole lot of stuff. Fascinating, fascinating film. Highly recommend it. First up, we'll hear from director Chris McKim. And after that, we'll hear from producers Fenton Bailey and Randy Barbato. And check out the website, projectionbootpodcast.com, where you can find out how to spell the title and where you can buy the film. Please tell me how you got interested in the business. Growing up, I just was always into TV and movies. I grew up in like Western Pennsylvania, the middle of nowhere. You know, at the time, it didn't really seem like that was something you could do, is leave Western Pennsylvania and go off and make movies. But that's, I guess, you know, what I did. I went to Penn State undergrad film and uh, from there moved to New York. And, you know, here I am. <laughs> what were some of your early gigs like? Well, you know, right after college, I ended up moving to New York and, you know, I thought I had a job at Savoy Pictures. I don't know if you remember Savoy Pictures oh, in yeah. Buffalo. Well, I got hired and moved to New York and they were like, oh, you don't have to start yet. You don't have to start yet. And it turned out that that was when the company went bankrupt and was sold. So suddenly I'm in New York without a job and ended up through this temp agency that only dealt with entertainment companies, ended up at Miramax in the 90s, which, you know, at the time, you know, never would have known that it was actually kind of easy to get in there because all you had to do was get in through this temp agency and the place was, you know, 
a lot of people straight out of college, a lot of people, it was their first job. And it was, you know, just this inc- a crazy place, but like a really incredible learning experience as well. You have worked in so many different things, editorial, camera, directing, producing. What did you start off with? Post-production, really editing in some way. And then it just sort of all, I think, evolved from there. You know, I always wanted to tell stories. You know, I'm not quite sure how I fell into post. It was just the opportunity that I think came up at the time. I started working at World of Wonder. You know, I was first an editor and then started doing these development reels and stuff. And that was really how like sort of the production and and everything started coming together because, you know, there was a real opportunity to go off and shoot stuff and, and figure out how to put it together and then, you know, tried to to sell it as a show. So that was really, I think, how everything kind of got started and then just kind of started doing more documentary stuff and got thrown on some reality shows and I was kind of moved on up from there. I know you worked for quite a few years on Drag Race. Can you tell me how that was? Yeah, I mean, that was amazing. It was, I was already working at World of Wonder and they had sold the show, but there was really no format. You know, it was top model for drag queens, you know, with a little bit of American Idol thrown in, but there was really no language. There was no sort of visual language. There was no concept. It was just a lot of crazy people in a room, crazy people being RuPaul and and Randy Barbado and Fenton Bailey and, and Tom Campbell and myself, and really, you know, trying to come up with what, what the show would be. And over those four years, I shared a cubby with Ru, which was, you know, exciting and a good time. But it was, you know, it was really exciting because it's hard to remember a time when there wasn't a show. When you come in and there really isn't, you know, sort of that universe and that world hasn't been developed yet. You know, I think it was really exciting to, to be there when so many things, even just the language of the show, sort of like the first time, you know, things were uttered, you know, like, uh, you know, I remember Rue coming in one day and, you know, talking to me. He had been with Matthew Anderson and it come up with Sashay Away and Shantae You Stay and, you know, so many other little things. It was just like to see something come together and then be able to see it sort of resonate and continue out into the universe and, and you know, have the sun never set on it is, is kind of exciting. How did you make that transition into working on feature documentaries? While I was working there, you know, it was, there was a mix of projects. It was sort of like the hard reality stuff and more documentary type material. And like Frida Queen of Balance was sort of a good example of that because it did have elements of reality, but we were just following Frida's career. It was where my interest was, certainly in, in telling more creative stories and, and, and trying to get more natural material out of people rather than trying to like produce drama or whatever it might be. And so it it just sort of like, you know, went from there out of Iraq came up, you know, there was a documentary that this producer director, Eva Orner has started and we ended up co-directing it, but you know, it was about this Iraqi soldier and an Iraqi translator who were working for the U S during the war in like 2003 in, in Iraq. And, they fell in love and it was sort of like their journey of trying to, to get out of Iraq and, and be together. And, you know, I think they spent a lot of time trying to get money for that project. And, you know, they had even had done some filming in Beirut with the boys and in Vancouver, but they hadn't really cracked sort of the financing and all that. And then suddenly the boys were both in Seattle and getting married. 
And so by that point, Eva was in Australia making another film and they wanted somebody to go up and, and film the wedding and, and do the interviews. And they just decided, you know, if they're going to do this shoot, they might as well just do the entire film at this point. So it, I just sort of came in and did all the interviews and, and you know, oversaw post and, and all of that. So yeah. when was the first time you came across David Wojnarowicz's work? I mean, I was aware of, you know, some of the essays and writing and, and the Rimbaud photos, um, you know, in college in the mid nineties, but it, you know, I, I think it was, had sort of lost track of David and then, and the work and then became reacquainted with it. It was July, 2017 is really when the project started and it just happened to be the right moment for me to stumble back across his name and, and to realize that there's all this incredible story to his life and, and the politics of his writing and art really seemed to kind of speak to the moment. You know, we were six months into the Trump administration and I was trying to find a project that made me feel better about what I was doing and, and, and less insane and, and, and hopeless. And, you know, at that moment, I, as I said, I sort of like stumbled back across David and realized there hadn't been a documentary about him at that point. And it was about a year before the Whitney retrospective. And so I reached out to, you know, PBOW, which was the final gallery that he was with, and they managed the estate. And it kind of came together through there. It must have taken so much just to go through all of the archives, because it's such a rich tapestry of his work, plus his own words. We were discovering things right up to the very end. You know, the archive had almost 200 audio cassettes, which was a mix of his tape journals and answering machine tapes band rehearsals, conversations with friends, all sorts of things, street noise, plus, you know, photos. He had over 500 contact sheets, which ended up being, I think, over 10,000 photos when you do the math of like how many, and we had those really high res. So each image had the potential of being a scene or a frame of the film. So like going through all that material, you know, different things popped at different times. Some things were like, you know, we saw them and were instantly like that has to go in the film. And then sometimes, the, the use or meaning of an image or the best way to use it didn't become clear till later. And, you know, we might be working on a section and piecing together audio and then remembering, you know, some stray photo that's like, oh, perfectly speaks to this moment. Plus all of his Super 8 films and stuff. So, you know, starting with the audio made it really easy because even though there were all these images and all this other work, it was really always tied to David's words and the story. Even once we started bringing, you know, doing new interviews and, and bringing in other voices, the fact that it was, you know, we were really cutting the audio first and cutting, you know, different sections and scenes and, and feeling good about the story that was being told and then did the work of sort of layering on the images for each section. It was insane, but less insane than it probably seems, you know, it was, it was kind of a controlled insanity. Yeah, it seems like it just must have been a huge, huge amount of work to just even start to tackle that. But I guess that's the best way that you could possibly could is to try to have him tell his own story in as much as his own voice. You know, when I first started the project, I can't remember if the film I'm Not Your Negro had come out in 2017 or if it was the year before, but it was something that was a big influence even before I realized how much audio that we had to work with and the quality of, of the content. You know, I knew there was some audio and there would be some elements of David speaking and I knew there'd be some video. And then, you know, of course there was all this writing, all these journals and essays and stuff. So I really thought it would be a mishmash of 
taken the writing and, and having it voiced by someone the way they did in that film and then mixed with David's own audio. And then once, once we realized just how incredible the audio was and, and what David had to say and that it really covered elements of, of a complete journey, both personally and as an artist and someone trying, you know, in the way that I was looking for something that made me feel better about what I was doing, David's work was always about, you know, shining a light on the problems in the world and, and, and trying to, you know, solutions and, and really call out, you know, this sort of corrupt power dynamics. And so to be able to, to kind of tell his story and his journey and then have it sort of like the fact that it did sort of mirror some of our own motivations for making the film felt very organic. And because of the way that David would use material, you know, his, his paintings and, and visual art were such collages, so many different elements and so many themes he would carry throughout, whether it was the sewn mouth that, you know, there's the famous silence equals death photo that Andreas Sturzing took, but you know, David used elements of the sewn mouth throughout his work, you know, going back to like the early 80s. And because so many elements would be reused and retried in different ways, whether it was the essay or the images throughout David's work, it really felt like there was this opportunity to tell his story in a way that he might potentially be reusing the stuff. I mean, chances are if he had lived, some of that stuff would have ended up in more work. Uh, and it also felt like a collaboration because David was so in our head. It, it also, you know, even though he had been gone for 30 years, it was actually, it felt more personal than some of the most personal projects I've done. And, you know, like I was with Tammy Faye when she started chemotherapy. And like I said, I've, you know, had this close relationship with Rue and, you know, with Big Frida and sort of, we've gone through all these adventures, but what David shares in the tapes both personally for himself and, and as he's working through things in, in the journals, but also the way he shared himself throughout his work in writing really sort of like transcended the fact that, you know, he had been gone for 30 years. It really felt very intimate. What's your actual process as far as keeping track of all these things and, and putting them all together using, I don't know, some sort of program three by five cards. You can't keep all of this in your head. It was a mix of keeping things in our heads and color coding became a thing because we never really, we didn't. And because of where David's audio came to us in the process, we were like doing a sizzle and there wasn't much money. We never got any of that, any of David's tapes transcribed. And so all of that, like, you know, we, we took notes and put things in timelines and, and all of that, but really it was a lot of trying to, to keep things organized either by, you know, in timelines or by, by topics. And of course, the new interviews were all transcribed. To make it a little nerdy, what really helped the whole thing was color coding different elements so that like, you know, all of the answering machine tapes were yellow and all the other archive was green and all, you know, so that the files, when we looked at the timeline and it was, you know, quite a dense timeline and, and sometimes without visual because we you know we could never look at interviews so there were certain visual cues that were missing and so just being able to look at the timeline and seeing like oh there's this pink and yellow clip together that must be this set you know this this is oh this is when his sister calls right after he has the rants or whatever it might be um, so that really helped a great deal how do you decide when you need to actually speak to a contemporary when you actually need to go out and do an interview 
it, it got to the point where, you know, there was some money to, to go back to New York. And I had been bouncing between LA and New York, going to his archive, which was at NYU, and, and really just taking photographs of a lot of things, sketches and, and various documents and stuff that end up in the film, on top of what we were requested getting sort of high res. I had like 10 days to go to New York and, you know, we reached out to as many people as we could and between who was available and, and, you know, who, who had the time to talk and, and who we were actually able to reach out to that, that became sort of the main interview list. And that was March, 2019. And, you know, I had done a little bit of filming around the Whitney retrospective. And at that point we did on-camera interviews with people that had been coming in from out of town. Jesse Helpberg, who was in the band with him, lives in France now, Marian Scamama who was a you know, big collaborator, had come over. So that was a good opportunity to kind of get people who were not near. But once the interviews were done, there, there really wasn't like a, another wave of it. It was just sort of financially based as to when that actually happened. So when is the first rough cut done? My process is, has always been to like race to that first rough cut and then kind of really do all the work of reshaping things and moving things around. Um, but that's when we were using interviews on camera. And the process with this was so complicated visually that like, you know, the, the different scenes audio wise were very tight and, and together. And then we would, you know, I would sort of hand off an audio section that would have some images laid on it to the editor, Dave Stanky, you know, and he would do his magic. And, and we ended up spending a lot more time getting sections right or more right than, than we normally would. And so an actual full rough cut was kind of late in the process, but so much of the film, we did spend more time, you know, trying to, to hone. It was just because of the way we did it with the collaging and, and so many different images, so much time and effort went into getting each sort of section that once you changed a couple of things, it kind of like didn't fall apart, but suddenly it, the repercussions of, of making some of the changes. Rough cut was really late, but at the same time, we had been sharing, you know, large sections over and over kind of throughout with Randy and Fenton. And the whole editing process only took like eight months, I think. You know, considering how difficult it was with the interviews off camera, it was it was within the realm of like what we had spent on something like Out of Iraq, I think, together. One of the reasons why I'm asking about timeline is because of that other deadline that's out there, March 2020, when the world shuts down. I'm curious how COVID affects this documentary. We locked the film February 2020 and we're racing because it was, we'd start cutting, I guess, the previous May and there was like a month or two down with holidays and stuff throughout. But, um, you know, we, we had locked the film because it had been accepted to Tribeca for, for that April. And so we were kind of racing to finish that. And another documentary, Frida Got a Gun, which was also accepted to Tribeca. And so the week that everything's shut down, March 13th is what I sort of call like my last day in polite society. That week, we were actually doing the final mix of the film. So even though the online wasn't finished, you know, the festival went away, the final mix had been done and the editor had kind of wrapped. So it was me and post-production dealing with fine-tuning the images and everything, but we couldn't really make any changes, even though we had all, suddenly all this time and no 
deadline in that it had nowhere to go at the moment because everything had shut down. There was no opportunity to kind of like, oh, go back into the film. And because everything had been racing coincidentally towards that week, more or less of finishing, but then it just took like six more months to finish. So what's the life of the film once it wraps? You know, it, it coincided with everything going away. <laughs> so right. it was pretty dramatic. <laughs> you know, and as I said, you know, there were two films that we were finishing. So it was like two and a half years of like incredible activity just kind of fell off because that film was also in the process of being so suddenly nowhere to go and nothing to do once the pandemic started. Has it had a premiere? It premiered at Doc NYC that November, November okay. 2020. And then okay. Kino Lorber picked it up. And so it was released virtual cinema. It was technically a, a theater release, but in virtual cinemas in March of 2021, it's past March, a few you know weeks before theaters actually started opening. But it's been available on video on demand and through Apple TV and, and stuff like that since March. And we've had a few in-person screenings. That must have been wild to have two feature films in the works at the same time. How did you even balance that for yourself? Also pretty insane. Luckily, you know, it wasn't until the last few months that they were going both at the same time. There, there would usually be some ping-ponging. You know, we were working on a sizzle for Wojnarowicz in January 2018 when Frida's brother, Big Frida's brother, was shot and killed, which led to the docu- that documentary. And so... You know, there were times where I'd come to New Orleans and we'd be filming for like a month and nothing was happening with Wojnarowicz. And it wasn't until suddenly they were both being entered in festivals and in rough versions. And then then that suddenly sort of dictated that both films were actively going at once. What are you working on now? Good question. You know, just in developing some stuff. How many projects do you work on at a time usually? It depends. I mean, you know, in terms of, it really depends because, you know, things are in in different stages. You know, it's nice to have one that's like actively shooting and or in post. I found it interesting that throughout the Wojnarowicz documentary, I'm seeing and hearing about artists like Keith Haring or Basquiat or some of the other contemporaries of, of David, but I've never heard of, of David Wojnarowicz before. And I don't know if that's, I'm coming from a different world, coming from the Midwest, so I'm not really familiar with the gallery world, but is it that he is dangerous, that he's his message is so much more political than other people's, that he's not user-friendly? Why would you say that I, I should have heard of him? Well, the name, I think, certainly has been a complication because people see it and, you know, don't know how to say it. I didn't know how to say it, you know, and would get it wrong. And even once I started the project, it took me a good six weeks to be able to remember how to spell it correctly and get it out correctly. You know, that is one issue, but also David's work is is very complicated stylistically. So that it's, you know, Keith Herring and 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 Maplethorpe, you see a Maplethorpe, you know, there's a fisting photo and you know that's a Maplethorpe and it's a brand and it's identifiable. And you know, you could see a stack of photos and have a good sense of, you know, if you're aware of his work, guess which ones are his. And with Keith Haring, it's sort of also a brand and and part of of the way they approached their art and in, in trying to sort of commodify it. And you know, David was a very much against that, but also even with the Whitney retrospective, because the work is so complicated and there's so many layers of images and 
collages, you know, on, on, on the wall, you really have to stare at the work for like 10 minutes to take it all in. And so I think that has, I mean, it was a challenge in making the film, but it was all, it's also, I think, a challenge in his legacy. The people that are aware of him are because of, of how, you know, quote unquote, dangerous he might be in terms of, of what he pointed out through the writing, which I think also then helped uh, make the, the art more digestible. Because if you're aware of what he was writing about, it also, you know, it kind of, you could see those themes and elements through the work. Yeah, I can't go to sharper in image and pick up David Vonorovich shower curtain like I can a Keith Haring, I suppose. Right. Yeah, exactly. Mr. McKim, thank you so much for your time. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Let me start with you, Randy. How do you and Fenton know each other? Fenton and I met at in the NYU graduate film program in New York back in the 20th century, in the 1900s. And we were in class together and started actually started making uh, films back then. And we've been sort of working together ever since. What were some of those early films like? Well, you know, it's funny, actually. The very first project we did was we had to make a slideshow because they wouldn't let you loose with film because it was so expensive because it was film school. It wasn't video school. It was film school. And we had to make a slideshow. And the slideshow Randy and I did was all involved the Statue of Liberty. So it's funny that, like, then what? 700 years later, we made a film. Last documentary feature that Randy and I directed was, was all about the Statue of Liberty. So, I mean, and I would say that the documentary we made for HBO with Diane von Furstenberg about such a Liberty is better than the slideshow we made in 1900 and... Tell me a little bit more about World of Wonder and how it's been working with, uh, with RuPaul and the World of Wonder folks. We started World of Wonder back in the last century. You know, we've kind of been working with RuPaul, for example, ever since, because also one of our first projects was a series for British television where we licensed public access in Manhattan. The series was called Manhattan Cable. And RuPaul was one of our roving reporters. He did a on-the-street investigative journalism piece about hookers. <laughs> and he went undercover as one. I mean, actually turned it a trick. In the meatpacking district before it was gentrified, right? Yes, we end the piece with him getting in a car and driving off for real. So World of Wonder, ever since we've done a lot of factual programming, a lot of documentary stuff. I mean, that was that's always been fed in my passion. And a lot of stuff that's a little left to center, inspired by the East Village. That's where we live. That's where we went to school. That's where we met all the drag queens we fell in love with. And that's where we also knew a gazillion people in, in David Wojnarowicz's orbit. There was a bar that he and the rest of the guys in the end girl in his band, Three Teens Kill Four, all of us used to hang out at the same bar in the East Village. Yeah, it all comes back to the 1800s at the Pyramid Club in the East Village. Did you know David at the time or were you just kind of in that same circle? We knew of David, like we knew him. We, we played the same clubs and, and we knew Jesse and Brian and 
everyone else in three teams kill four. We didn't really hang out with David, though. Now, how did the Winorovich project come about? Well, that was really Chris McKim, who we've worked with many times. Actually, Chris show ran the first few seasons of Drag Race. And we worked with him long before that. He show ran the Tori and Dean show that we did. And he did a film after we made The Eyes of Tammy Faye about Tammy Faye's battle with cancer. So we've had a long-term relationship. Chris came to us and said he wanted to make a film about Wojnarowicz. And, and he was completely obsessed and immersed in all this archive and material. And Randy and I, I think we were like, we just finished this film about Robert Maplethorpe who, as an artist from the same area, from the East Village, you know, in the 80s, was significantly more well-known than David Wojnarowicz. I suppose in a way we were like, oh, like it seems like it be, could be good, but they were just such opposites. And I think it was the fact, actually, that they were such opposites that sort of kind of intrigued us as this idea of two artists in one milieu at the same time dealing with a, a worldwide crisis, but in very different ways. Wojnarowicz made his voice. He was one of the founder members of ACT UP. And from his diagnosis, which in those days was a death sentence, he made his whole art became consumed with this voice of, of speaking about not just AIDS in a very specific sense, but in the, the government's neglect and the way that minorities were seen as disposable, whether it's sexual minorities, ethnic minorities, racial minorities, you know, by what he called the one tribe nation, which was sort of Reagan, patriarchal, white, Republican, conservative. So I think it was that and the fact that there we were in Trump environment, which is a sort of Reagan redux, but even like more amplified. We thought, oh, this, this could be really relevant. None of us knew, of course, that the pandemic was on its way, but that added... You know, there was Wojnarowicz dealing with AIDS and talking about an epidemic sweeping sweeping the, the country and the world and indifference to that and the prejudice and somewhat the incompetence and the fear. And here we were, it turned out, right as, as Chris was finishing his film, the world entering another pandemic. And exactly the same things played out. Prejudice, ignorance, fear, incompetence just sort of history repeating itself in a in a really profound, shocking way that really made his voice, Wojnarowicz's voice, even more, you know, important and relevant than it had ever been. Help me understand as far as when Chris comes to you with this, what are your steps? What are you doing to help shepherd the project through and make it a success? You know, we, we've had a long history working with Chris McKinn. So we know he's an incredibly talented director and producer. You know, we've worked on so many projects. And in fact, we did an independent documentary with him that he won an Emmy Award for a few years ago out of Iraq. So we had a lot of confidence that he could do this independently. The reality is, it was pretty clear to us early on, this was not the sort of project that we could go out and pitch and get financing for. You know, it's Wojnarowicz, fuck you, faggot fucker. I mean, the Academy wouldn't even let us put the subtitle onto the voting ballot. It wasn't even, I would say it was a leap of faith because we're not out in the field, like side by side shooting with him. This, we knew it was archive based. We knew it was a very singular creative endeavor that we were 
willing to kind of provide the resources and support for without the interference. And we also knew that, that you know, we were going to have to independently finance this. So we're going to need to be smart and thrifty. And we had confidence that, that Chris understood that as well. You know, it's this particular film, it was a beautiful pairing of filmmaker and subject. I think there was so much that they had in common in terms of like, you know, confidence in their vision of and an accuracy of their vision of the world that we live in. And so it was really kind of beautiful process that unfolded and, you know, and a unique one in terms of like from a producerial perspective. Although I think, you know, it'd be great if there were more films where filmmakers really had the opportunity to make the precise film that they're inspired to make. Looking at your CVs, you've got so many balls in the air. We're an independent company, one of the few remaining, and you just, it's like you're like a shark. You have to keep swimming. If you stop swimming, you sink. <laughs> and so you like, it is like a juggle. And uh, Randy's frowning at my shark analogy. I don't, I consider myself more of a dolphin, but go with the shark if you want. Yeah, no, shark does have the wrong, does sound like we're just snapping at things. Yeah, or more like a, maybe like a manatee. We're like one of those whales that just eats plankton. That, that's a more benign image. You need lots of little bits. <laughs> so I, I didn't realize until just recently that you are behind World of Wonder. I thought that you were working with, not that you were World of Wonder. Aha. Uh-huh. I have the Roku app. I have subscribed to the channel. Yes. I, as soon as it uh, was available, I definitely picked that up. Give us notes. What do you think about it? What do you watch? I, while I watch all of the different drag races, I wish to God that the subtitles were better. I don't know if it's my Roku or my TV, but the subtitles are all centered on the screen and they're impossible to read. So I'm having a hell of a time watching drag race Italia. Well, take that upstairs but you know um drag Italia, don't you kind of get a feel of what's i mean i speak no italian myself but like it's so expressive right what's going on like it's a bit like drag race thailand too they're very passionate right oh, very very passionate yes oh and i love drag race thailand it is fantastic watch the took me forever to find that first season and then whoever did the subtitles for that was insane they gave like cultural notes to all the the different terms and things whoever did that was wild right i'm gonna we're gonna get on to them and get sort the subtitles out yeah but no it's fantastic and i'm glad to see that it just keeps expanding and adding you know that you've got now the raven show and then 2022 is going to be a very exciting year for wow presents plus there's a lot of really dynamic new content coming so so i'm um, you know it's it's fun to talk to someone who actually watches it because like you know it we're growing it slowly but we're it's got the kind of stuff that we would like to watch and obviously you know all of our docs ultimately will end there so that the doc division will keep growing and growing is it safe to say that drag race helps paved the way for the other stuff that without that you might not be able to produce as much of the other content or am I completely off base? The success of drag race 
just is has been really super because there's been a lot of talent that's come through Drag Race that have followings now. And I think there's an audience that has always been there, but hasn't been serviced. And they're not really just people who love drag race or drag. They're like, they're just people who've been underserviced, who aren't even necessarily just LGBTQ. It's more specific than that. It's like a queer flavor that, and I think that that world of wonder has always been interested in that flavor. I think the Wojnarowicz film is such a great example of that because it, it, you know, it's about an artist. It's about the East Village. It's about outsiders and unabashedly queer, which I think when I say queer, not just in the LGBTQ sense. And I think that's so, so drag race's success has been great for all of that, but mainly because I think it's sort of attracted like-minded individuals and that audience is sort of growing and growing and realize, Oh, there's others out there. And, you know, there's more opportunity for more adjacent content. You remember like the, the sort of rallying cry used to be, we're here, we're queer, get used to it. And I think the update to that is we're here, we're queer. People are getting used to it because they realize that we're all queer and that we all feel like outsiders. I was just reading, you know, Anne Rice recently passed away and I love the Vampire Chronicles. And I was just reading an interview she gave in Rolling Stone, like, I don't know, 15 years ago or something. And she was talking about writing Lestat, how... She couldn't care less about the victims of the vampires and writing about them. She was interested in writing about the victims as outsiders. And that by taking that approach, it allowed her to explore all these things that from her very religious background, she felt empowered to explore. And I think there is something, yes, outsiders, but I think extending that idea slightly is something fundamentally queer about the whole Vampire Chronicles, even though they're not necessarily, you know, LGBTQ either in an activist sense or in a specific sexual sense, but they have that DNA. What we've seen this century especially is people recognizing that that voice isn't the voice of a minority, but is actually a voice inside pretty much everybody. It's the human, it's the voice of the human condition. The queer condition speaking a little bit in, in drag race terms, there is that idea of knowing your past, you know, when you get to like your snatch game or some of these things, it's like, okay, know the past, you know, the references that are made. So having a documentary about one and some of these other docs, it's so important. And it's, you know, it, I guess I could see drag race as like a gateway drug to knowing more and learning about these icons. And I would say that Wojnarowicz is an icon, you know, and I was telling Chris, you know, I knew Keith Haring, I knew Mabel Thorpe, but Wojnarowicz, I had no idea that he existed and what an important figure he was in the world. Wojnarowicz is an icon, but he's never been like, he's never had the iconic status of like Keith Haring and Robert Mabel Thorpe. I mean, Fed and I to say, it, like, part of it is just because you can't pronounce his name. And it's well, like, Spilet. I mean, it's the worst branding in the world. But he was, you know, he was anti that. He was like one of the last artists who defied that. I mean, this isn't to knock Warhol or Basquiat or Herring, 
because they're all amazing artists, but they embraced the whole, they saw the way that the art world was going and the, that sort of merger of the creative and the decorative. I think they, they just figured that out in a way that Winnerow was like, no, I'm an artist. I'm, you know, I'm not here for commodification, you know. It feels too that he's more than just the art, more than just the images to have the words, the the music, you know, you mentioned his band. I mean, just he had so many different things going on that he's not just a one trick pony as far as like here, here's a pretty picture I painted. It was so much more than that. Again, fish out of water in the sense that multimedia artists weren't really appreciated then. You know, he worked in all those different mediums. I mean, Warhol, I guess. I mean, Warhol pioneered pretty much everything, you know, because he worked in all those different mediums. But generally speaking, you kind of stuck to your lane, right? Seeing those clips from the Richard Kern films, that was wonderful. And to see how they were reflecting some of his real life things that had gone on, that was terrific. And to see Karen Finley show up, I was so excited for that. What are some of the other documentaries that World of Wonder is putting its stamp on now? We have a documentary that premiered just this week on Paramount Plus called Explant. It's executive produced and features Michelle Visage. It's her journey to remove her breast implants. And it's it's a look at breast implant illness and also just like the history incredibly surprising and twisted and outrageous history of breast implants. And it's directed by Jeremy Simmons, who is also someone who we've worked with for a very long time and uh, is an Emmy award-winning director, I believe. It's like a family film. It really is. And it's really, I really encourage people to see it because it's, it's, it's not what you would expect. Yeah, I wouldn't expect Michelle Visage in a family film. Yeah, well, she does take her top off. One of the things that impresses me the most about the Wojnarowicz documentary is the use of the, the previous existing footage and how that is you know, used. Really, it's the spine of the film. Were there any challenges as far as getting clearance or anything as far as using the that footage? There's a, a gallery called PPOW who handles his estate. And as luck would have it, it was a gallery that was in East Village in the 80s that Randy and I knew and knew the principles. And I don't know that that, that I think it was in truth, it was Chris's approach to them and their enthusiastic response to the idea of a film about Wojnarowicz. But it was just an example of, of a small world or a full circle moment. But they are a great, it's a great art gallery and they do great by his work and they couldn't be more delightful to work with or cooperative or helpful, supportive. Mr. Bailey, Mr. Barbato, thank you so much for your time. This has been great. Thank you. Good to talk to you, Mike.
Yeah. <laughs> 